and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL podcast. Our guest today is Tony Veet. Tony is the Director of Cybersecurity Advocacy Group, ISC Squared. Tony, maybe you can kick it off by telling us a little bit about your background and what it is that ISC Squared do. Uh, we're an association of certified cybersecurity members. Uh, around the world, I've got about 145,000 members uh, who are all certified cybersecurity professionals. Okay. Now, we've got ISC Squared. How does that differ from IASA? Uh, from from, oh, from ASA, sorry, yeah. Yeah, so so we work very closely with ASA. So ASA is the Australian Information Security Association, and anyone can join ASA. Uh, they've got, from memory, about five odd thousand uh, members, and a lot of our members are in fact members of ASA as well. So um, anyone can join ASA, whereas we're a certified professional body uh, where you need to be qualified and certified to be able to uh, to join. Okay, and so for fear of making this sound like an ad, but we're just going to get all this out of the front, out at the front end of the podcast. What is the benefit of being a certified member of your organisation? Sure. So, it, when you become certified, what it shows a prospective employer or someone who's looking at um, working out whether you know something about cybersecurity is that you can establish knowledge, experience, uh, and pedigree. So you've been in the industry for a period of time. Um, anywhere between one and five years, depending on the certification. And it gives employers confidence that the person they're hiring is, is a cybersecurity expert. Excellent. So the subject of our podcast today is cybersecurity and some of the challenges that the industry is facing and society is facing in general, and trying to sort of look at some of the issues that maybe more of the physical security managers need to be aware of in the cybersecurity space. Now, listening to the news this morning, they were talking about the fact that uh, the Australian Cybersecurity Centre is getting something like 10 reports a day of serious hacking, and that hacking is on the growth exponentially at the moment. Why are we seeing such a rise in cybersecurity? Well, primarily because uh, for someone who's motivated, it's quite an easy endeavour for them to be able to break into a system and steal data that might be valuable and, and that data depending on, on who they are and what they're trying to achieve can be financial data, it can be personal data, it can be an organisation's intellectual property. Um, in most instances, sadly, most organisations don't practice good cyber security uh, as much as we'd like for them to do so. Um, we're still in that very early stage, even today, of making sure that organisations do a base level of cybersecurity hygiene in order to be able to protect their data. Which is extraordinary, really, when you think about it, because every single organisation relies on information and the integrity of its information to some degree. And more and more organisations are relying on things like social media and outward-facing presence on the internet in order to pro uh, promote their brand, grow their brand, um, build communities around their brand. If they're not protecting that properly, I mean, I imagine... With cybersecurity threats now, it's not just about people stealing data, it's also about protecting your brand. Correct, correct. The, the big difference between physical and cyber is that people can see physical threats and physical vulnerabilities. If a lock is broken, they can see that. Whereas with cybersecurity, if a firewall, for instance, is badly configured, you can't physically see that unless you know where to look and, and can log in and access and change that. So for a lot of people, it, that's actually quite the challenge is being able to visualise what these problems actually look like. For a hacker, they don't have that problem because they know exactly where to look and, and what to do to be able to get in. So that's, I think, one of the biggest differences between physical and, and cyber in terms of why we've got these problems today. Yeah, and I guess there's a lot of parallels between the old Donald Rumsfeld axiom with terrorism of, you know, we, are, we have to get it right every day. The terrorists only have to get it right once. I suppose that 
applies equally to cybersecurity? Absolutely. There's this. Um, th- there's sometimes a bit of a narrative, particularly on social media, saying, "Oh, you know, cybersecurity experts don't know what they're doing." It's much harder to protect against a threat than it is to actually perform that threat because you're protecting against thousands upon thousands of different uh, threats and vulnerabilities that exist in the world today. Um, and uh, you know, the analogy I use is look at look at aviation pilots who are very well trained, and sadly, once every so often, there's going to be a mistake and and something's going to happen. And it happens in, in our field as well. But by and large, the problem is actually not that. The problem is that in most cases, that information isn't, hasn't even been protected to begin with. Um, and to give you a bit of context, in Australia, we have a big skill shortage of cybersecurity professionals, which is part of the reason why a lot of organisations have, have gone without good cyber protections over all these years. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit because... Right now, this is, uh, I suppose it's, it's almost incorrect to say it's an emerging area of study or an emerging threat. It's been around for a significant time now. But, you know, a lot of the stuff that comes out of the Gartner Research Report says that, you know, I think a couple of years ago, two or three years ago at an RSA conference in San Francisco, they said right now at this time in 2016, um, we have a shortage of roughly 5 million cybersecurity professionals globally. And by 2021, that's going to be something like a shortage of 15 million thereabouts don't quote me on those numbers because i've probably cocked it up royally but um you know it gives you an idea of the magnitude of the problem Uh, where do we even begin to tackle something like this well to clarify some of those numbers so we publish research uh, every year Uh, last year 2018 uh, 2.93 million uh, shortfall around the world in australia it's about 47 odd thousand organizations such as oz cyber have 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 said about twenty to 30,000 just in Australia and they've, they've been able to calculate the numbers there. Where do we start? So my view is that cybersecurity has a, a bit of an image problem. And uh, when I say image problem, when you talk to any person on the street who is not involved in cybersecurity and you talk about cyber, the first image they have is the hoodie, the hacker sitting in front of a computer in, in mum's basement um, being, you know, very mysterious and a bit of that, that aura there. Now, there is an element of that in cybersecurity, but most cybersecurity careers don't look like that. Yeah. And one of the biggest challenges we have is changing that perception. Um, and as a result of that perception, that's why we do have, even today, a, a shortage of women in the industry. We have a shortage of people who are governance, risk and compliance people. Um, physical security people, I think, are fantastic cyber professionals because they know how to look for risks and vulnerabilities. They actually understand that. All they need to do is apply what they know in the physical world to a, a virtual world and be able to practice those skills effectively so it's about changing that in my view okay um from a physical security point of view though i mean traditionally in this industry especially for years and years and years we have been used to dealing with where are we going to put cameras where are we going to put access control points uh where do we put locks how do we control through the throughput of people and all the rest of it and dealing with that whole defense in depth onion layering type approach but then as we had the migration from old analog systems to digital systems, all of a sudden a lot of the silos that used to exist around these systems where we had our CCTV siloed over here on an analog system. We had our access control siloed over here, our intrusion detection likewise, is now all running on the same network, which makes it a lot more vulnerable, yet our learning and our thinking in many respects around these things hasn't caught up. Obviously, we have CCTV vendors who are very mindful of building cybersecurity into their systems, but the system is only as strong as the person 
using it. Right. So how does the physical security world begin to get its head around the cybersecurity stuff? And if I'm a physical security manager within an organization, what do I need to be thinking about? Sure. So uh, you've just described a, a major problem. And if you look at many of the breaches that have occurred today, those breaches have occurred because a hacker or an intruder has found a vulnerable system and through that vulnerable system has then gone and found the crown jewels of the company, which is its database, its, its customer records, its intellectual property, blueprints, whatever it might be. Well, Target was a perfect example of that in the US a couple of years ago. Maybe explain for those listeners who aren't aware of it, what happened with Target. Sure. So so Target is a, is a fantastic example. So an organisation that was contracted by Target to install air conditioning systems into all of their stores uh, were given network access to be able to connect those air conditioners that these days are connected into a network to be able to, to analyse data and, and, and the like. They were given network access. Now, a hacker actually hacked into that supplier and found the details for Target's network to be able to access the network. So in doing that, they had full uh, network access and in doing that, they were able to actually deploy malware that skimmed every credit card transaction that went through in every one of their stores for a period of about eight months from memory, um, worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I actually worked with the, the legal firm that was recruited to actually solve that. They had to send so many letters out to their customers that the US Postal Service crashed <laughs> because, wow. of, because of how many notifications they had to send. They had to then stall it over a number of days. So it was a huge issue. Um, and that happened because they were given access and the company that was uh, recruited to put in these air conditioning systems didn't have any network security. People got in, found the data, uh, found the records to be able to access Target and, and off you go. So it's that whole, that whole adage that we often talk about in security of, do you know what your neighbours are doing? Correct, correct. And and that's where you, you see, um, particularly around uh, supplier and uh, supply chain logistics these days, there's a big conversation in cybersecurity about what sort of access do you give your customers, uh, what sort of access do you give your suppliers, and, and do you know what they're doing? Do you know what they're doing around cybersecurity? Because they could potentially be a point of entry. Yeah, Okay. So this brings us back to the whole thing of, as a physical cybersecurity, uh, as a physical security specialist, what do I need to know and what do I need to be thinking about? And and one of those things, based on what we just discussed, I imagine, is we can have our own trusted network, but how trusted are the people within our network? Correct, correct. So, um, in in the olden days, and when I say olden days, this is going back about fifteen years ago when I was working for a networking vendor. Many of the physical security organisations, and I say physical, I mean electronic as well, were deploying their own networks in order to be able to set up CCTV cameras and access control systems. But increasingly, given the cost of, of networking and the like, a lot of organisations are saying, look, just run everything off the same network. That inherently has problems because if you give access to a, a system uh, that that also has access to a bunch of other systems, then they, they could potentially be issues. Now... It's the human factor here because these systems are not being set up properly. They're not being segregated properly. And as you said earlier, the defence and depth systems just don't exist in many organisations. Um, so it's about educating people around these are the things that you need to be doing at a base level. Um, network segmentation, for instance, a firewall, for instance, antivirus or whatever it might be. Um, depending on the organisation, some organisations need more than others. But understanding what needs to be done in order to protect that and make sure that... Um, technicians are setting up systems properly. The other problem, of course, is a lot of these devices that are being left on the network are being left with the default uh, admin accounts 
and and the technicians are sometimes being distracted halfway through and they forget to disable them and as a result of that they get in and and they've got full admin access into a, into a network so there are, there are multiple problems but the human element is is the is the critical one so let's go through if we can the top maybe five or six common mistakes that you're seeing large organizations make from a cybersecurity perspective and what if anything can be done to rectify them sure the Last week, there was a report released into the ANU breach. And the ANU breach was, uh, for the audience listening, it might be one to, to actually look at what happened, the, the forensics behind you know, what occurred. The initial breach occurred through a phishing email that was sent to a number of different people. And by, some people... Sorry, I was just going to say, by ANU, I'm assuming you're talking about Australian National University. Yes, sorry, yep. we should yeah, clarify. No, that's okay. Yeah, the Australian National University. Um, so the initial attack happened through a, um, a phishing email that was sent to a bunch of different people. Some people spotted it, some people didn't. Those who didn't um, were, were the cause of the initial um, access into the network. And then a bunch of different compounding errors kept on happening where people were, were let in. And as a result of that something like uh, over 10 years of data was taken out of their network. So phishing emails remain the number one problem. Um, number two is incorrectly configured network uh, devices, network services, IP surveillance cameras where the password hasn't been changed, for instance, is a, is a really big one. Um, I've presented at ASIO in the past and, and I've, I've often illustrated some of the websites that exist where you can see these cameras in operation simply because the, the password hasn't been set up or changed. Uh, no firewall rules. A lot of people put a firewall in and don't configure it. A, a firewall not being configured is like putting a big gate around your property and leaving the <laughs> the the opening wide open and, and not yeah. you know um, those those three there. And then obviously the user um, experience. A lot of people don't know how to spot a phishing email. A lot of people don't realise how easy it is to create an email that can look like it was sent from someone that you trust. So as a result. Sometimes uh, people get emails that say, look, you know, we've, we've changed our bank account details. From now on, please pay us to, to this account. Sometimes it's easy as picking up the phone to that mm. supposed organisation and say, look, I've just received an email from you. Is it true you've changed your bank account details? Because if it is, we're happy to pay you in a new place. But if it's not, well then, yeah, I don't know what this is about. So user error. Um, and I'm just trying to think of a, of, a, of a fifth one, but a lot of it has to do with um, also vulnerabilities in software. A lot of programs are, are created, whether it's software for a camera, whether it's software for your computer, and over time vulnerabilities get picked up. And if things aren't patched as a result of that, those vulnerabilities can be exploited. And that's also a big way that, that attacks can occur is through the exploitation of, of vulnerabilities that have been long dealt with but haven't been patched. Yeah. So let's go back a step because number one and number four were sort of around, you know, receiving phishing emails and then not user error, not understanding what a phishing email looks like. So mm. explain to, to those people who are listening, what are some of the common telltales that you might look for in understanding what may or may not be a phishing email? Because there's probably a, a third error related to this once we understand what the phishing email looks like. And that is, not having properly documented and understood procedures around what to do if you suspect something is a phishing email and not having properly documented and understood procedures around what to look for that might be a phishing email. Sure. So a lot of the telltale signs are spelling mistakes, for instance, not using your uh, actual name in the email. A lot of the times you get emails that are phishing ones that refer to your email address. Uh, a lot of them are very, very... Um, uh, 
ambiguous in terms of where they come from or what they're asking you to do. They're saying, please click on here to reset your password or whatever it might be. My suggestion is always if you do get an email where you suspect that you're not 100% sure, is visit that, so go to a browser and type in that company's email address or, or website or whatever it might be um, and access it that way. So if they're saying to you, reset a password, visit this link. If it's the ANZ Bank, for instance, go to the ANZ Bank in your browser rather than rely on a link. Um, you can also hover over a link. A lot of email browsers allow you to actually see the email or the, the website address when you hover over a link, and that'll tell you. The problem is that a lot of hackers are actually really clever and crafty, and what they're doing is they're creating these links that even almost look like they're legitimate uh, websites. So even that you can't really rely on. My view is that if you're not 100% sure, don't click on it. Yep. Simple as that. So something that I started doing a couple of years ago based on the advice of, of someone who writes for our magazine that a lot of our readers may not be aware of is show headers. Um, because whenever you get an email that you think is a little bit dodgy and it's from, let's just use them as an example, ASIC or the tax office, you know, there have been a few of those that have come out and you look at the email address on it and it says from info at ato.gov.au, but then you say show headers and it's actually, the header's been spoofed. It's Tony at myfavoritecat.com. Correct. So can we talk a little bit about that and maybe tell listeners, how do you, what is spoofing a header and how do they actually get people to go and look at the actual proper header? Sure. So, so there's nothing stopping anyone from going and opening up a free Gmail account and changing their name to, you know, John Bigelow, for instance, or Tony Beats or whoever it might yep. be. And all of a sudden, I can send an email, you know, on your behalf to someone who you may know. And if I've done some social media reconnaissance, I might be able to look at people that you're connected to on LinkedIn or Facebook, whatever it might be. And pretend to be you and say, look, you know, just curious, have you paid my invoice? Have you done this? Have you done that? If you haven't, please pay me here, all right? So Showhead is a really good example of that. But even with people who are not technically savvy, even that is too complicated. Right. My, because a, a lot of the time, clicking on Showheader, you know, we're, we're kind of reliant because we understand this technology. We're, we're quite blessed. But a lot of, you know, average people out there don't know. They, they don't know how to spot a legitimate email versus an illegitimate email. My view is if you're not banking with ANZ, for instance, or NAB or whoever it might be, well, then why would you be getting an email from anyway? Right? So it's about using some common sense as well. Um, if you've been working with an organisation for years and they've they've sent a certain procedure and all of a sudden you get an email purporting to change that procedure, then, you know, give it some thought and give them a call and find out. Because a lot of the times that's, you know, I use an example, Brisbane City Council uh, a couple of years ago. They had a supplier that, you know, on the public record, we're giving them services. They get a letter in the post from this company, supposedly from this company, saying, look, thank you for all the years of custom. From now on, we're just letting you know we're changing our bank account details. This is our new bank account detail number. They processed it. A month later, the company rings up the council saying, look, we're chasing these invoices. You normally pay on time. What's going on? Mm. And and they were paying this new bank account. So phishing emails and, and even um, traditional old postal type letters are even used by hackers to be able to, to siphon off money that way. So... The answer is, it's a very difficult answer, yeah. to put it bluntly, but it's around practicing common sense and just and just taking a step back and just realizing, does this feel right? And if it doesn't, then exercise caution. Yeah. And the next thing you mentioned, patching, that's a pretty simple one. It's not that hard 
to make sure that everything is patched? You know what? It's not. But the example that I use is uh, is particularly so. So my wife hates patching the phone because you have to turn it off and you have to do it. Most people, so us in the industry, we take it as a given. The moment my phone says to me, you need to update, I update it. But most people don't view it as, you know, I'm dealing with a vulnerability. It's, for them, a pain in the backside. And, and they have to take time out of their day to turn off their phone, whatever. It is worth it. Do it. Um, and I can't emphasize that, not just on your phone, but on your computers. Uh, religiously check your Windows updates and your Apple's updates and any software that you've got installed as well. Set some time to be able to update that as well because as much as your operating systems can have vulnerabilities and, and Windows and Apple and the like will deal with those, a lot of the software that you use has the same sort of problems. Flash is, is one that's often talked about. Microsoft Office, whatever it might be, there's also vulnerabilities there. Update those uh, quite regularly. Yeah, well, I suppose from a, a physical security point of view, and correct me if this analogy is wrong, because I often cock these things up, um, you know, when you get a, an up, a software update warning on your phone, for example, in a security world that's physical, it would be no different, I, as I understand it, to someone ringing you up and saying, Tony, we have CCTV footage here of someone in the cafe where you were having lunch making a plasticine impression of your front door keys. Mm. So we've... We've got reason to suspect that there's now a vulnerability that exists. We strongly suggest you change your front door lock. Mm, correct. And yet most people go, oh, yeah, well, it's too hard, I can't be bothered. Exactly, because again, they can't see. It's it's a, a software vulnerability. A lot of the times what you see in, in the Apple updates or the Windows update, it's this convenient, you know, one you know, line statement that says, oh, this is updating a whole bunch of security things. Update it. If you dig deeper, you realise what it's actually updating and that actually freaks people out because it's actually updating what you just, you know, described, the, the plasticine, you know, mould. So a lot of people, we've, we've almost made it too easy because they don't see what we're actually doing in protecting all this stuff. Um, and, and that's a challenge because, you know, you can have too much information, not enough information. And I think even as an industry today, we're trying to figure out where we need to be on that balance because for some people, it's too much info. They don't want to deal with it. For some people, it's not enough. Why should I bother installing this update? Is it critty? Does it affect me, <laughs> yeah. for instance? Yeah. Is it the case that companies need to have formal procedures outlined, written and documented that say updates must be carried out within a timely manner, within the release of new patches? New patches have to be searched for on a regular basis because if you don't have that documented procedure there, then what's saying anyone's going to do it? That's correct. And for most organisations, it's an information security management strategy. It's a, it's a, a separate uh, document within that that highlights updating and patching. Most organisations that are religious about this will actually test the patches before they deploy them because sometimes installing a patch actually introduces a whole bunch of, of new vulnerabilities in. Um, an example that I used in the, in the electronic security world was there was a vendor of, uh, of cameras who asked companies to put the update in for, for their cameras and in doing so it actually cleared all of the passwords <laughs> on those cameras oops exactly and and what happened was there was one organization who i know working in in, in the asial space whose cameras showed up on um on one of the websites that shows all the open cameras with their logo splashed saying proudly installed by this particular organization and i picked up the phone and i said Look, you've got a problem here. I can see all of your cameras in this one city and it was a, a, a fitness chain that had all these cameras and I said, you probably want to get on top of this. And he said to me, he said, what do you mean? We just installed an update and, you know, we, we got this update from the vendor and they told us to install it. 
I said, well, that must have cleared all the passwords because, you know, so they did the right thing, but they actually ended up causing new vulnerabilities by trying to deal with existing vulnerabilities. Which is interesting. So for those people who are unaware of it, explain sandboxing. So sandboxing is where you uh, you might test a piece of software or a piece of equipment in a sandbox environment so that if it has any uh, malware, any sorts of issues, you can find out about those issues in a protected environment without it affecting anything else. So um, a lot of uh, vendors in the cybersecurity space, they deploy sandboxing because if you pick up a, a, an email with an attachment that's a bit you know, sus, they will typically uh, run that a piece of attachment in the sandbox to see what it does and analyze it. And if it's anything that's malicious, I'll just block it um, or clean that malicious code out of that potentially. So that's what sandboxing is. Okay. Now, something I hear frequently from a lot of physical security managers when you're talking to them about cybersecurity is, ah, I, I don't need to know about that. I've got cybersecurity experts who deal with all of that for me. Why, as a physical security manager, do I need to know about cybersecurity? Or is it the case that I don't if I've got cybersecurity experts? If you're connecting anything into a network that's going to be accessible on the internet, then you need someone who's a cybersecurity expert. Now, where a lot of uh, electronic and physical security organisations probably get it wrong is that they're reliant on their IT, their network uh, people to know about cybersecurity. Now... The network is a fundamental piece of, of IT, but cybersecurity really is an art onto itself. It would be the equivalent of me expecting someone who knows uh, access control systems to also uh, be able to set up cameras, for instance. They're really good at access control. Are they going to be good at, at knowing the angles that cameras need to go in and do that? No. So what I would also always say to organisations that are employing uh, IT people is make sure that they've got someone who is cyber um, certified as well because that person is usually the go-to person for the network person to make sure that everything's configured securely. Yeah and it's also my understanding that I don't know if it's still the case but in the past there has very much been this I suppose firewall for lack of a better term between the physical security and the cyber security as far as we've got all these cameras we've got all these access points we've got all this stuff we need to put it on the network mm -hmm. And the IT people saying, not on my network, you don't. You're going to slow everything down and, and muck it all up. And then you suddenly get this issue where you're running two separate networks and one's being monitored and the second one possibly not. Yep. And then you'll find that somewhere the second network's actually connected into the first network because it needs internet access because there's some sort of data going back maybe to a, a monitoring company or maybe the customer said, look, I want to be able to access my cameras remotely. So all of a sudden that second discrete network, which was never meant to have been connected to the internet, is... And that's how you start introducing vulnerabilities into both networks because as a result of that, then, you know, you've got issues. So network segmentation we talked about before is is what a lot of organisations are relying on. Speed and bandwidth used to be an issue in networks. So we go back 20 years ago where you, you had slower networks. These days, it's not something that we see very often where an IT organisation will say, oh, no, no, you can't put your cameras on my network. It'll slow it down. It's actually more about the security piece than it is about slowing down um, perspective. Uh, but again, they're not doing it properly, which is where there's such significant issues in, in this space today. Mm. So penetration testing. Penetration testing is something that we hear spoken about a lot, but, you know, it's people think of penetration testing like being something out of a, a Tom Clancy novel. It's a, a spy novel type thing. Ooh. I mean, 
Tell us a little bit about penetration testing and, and is it the kind of tool that organisations should be using frequently? And if so, what kinds of organisations? Sure. So so penetration testing is where a uh, an ethical hacker, uh, typically a white hat hacker, as we call them, is given the task of trying to break into a network uh, and go in and, and find where any issues are. Now, there is a bit of an issue with the whole concept of penetration testing because a lot of organisations think that's the first place you go to in order to deal with cybersecurity. Penetration testing is probably the last thing that you should worry about because the same way it, as you would in the physical security uh, realm, if I'm trying to work out whether my house is physically secure, do I send the, the burglar in to try to break in or do I actually get a security company to come in and check my locks, check my uh, windows, make sure my alarm system's running, doing all of that there? So in our industry, we call that a vulnerability assessment. So a vulnerability assessment is far more valuable in the initial than a penetration test. That'll give you an idea of to where all your vulnerabilities in the network are, or most vulnerabilities, being able to deal with those. And then once you've done all of that and you know that you're, you're, you've dealt with all those vulnerabilities, that's when you could potentially order a penetration test and see if someone can still break in. That'll be a lot more valuable. Yep. So if I'm a financial institution or a healthcare institution or aviation or transport or whatever it may be, and I have my own cybersecurity team, how frequently should I be doing a cybersecurity evaluation or audit? Mm. Good question. So that really comes down to um, what uh, regulatory environment they're in. So if you look at organisations that, uh, that are run by APRA or that are regulated by APRA, they have a, a standard called CPS234, which mandates a certain number of, of audits per year. Um, if you are a healthcare provider, then you come under the Privacy Act. If you uh, turn over more than, from memory, $3 million a year, you come under mandatory breach. So depending on your level of risk, because you might be a small business that doesn't keep all that much data on a network, do you have to run a, a pen test every year? Probably not, all right? Um, you need to make sure that you, your cyber's in order, but it depends on your, your level of risk, because if you're looking after some very valuable and, and, and highly regulated data, then you need to have a, a much better regime around that than you do if you're a small business that's carrying car parts, for instance. Yep. So I imagine a lot of the large organisations, the, the Fortune 500s, the big government departments, the, the health cares and all those ones we've spoken about, the things that we talked about earlier in this podcast, like phishing emails, patching, audits, those sorts of things, they're going to be all over that. Mm. But yeah. then there's probably a certain level of... Um, vulnerability and risks that a lot of organizations don't think about. And I'll ask you to explain some of these because I'm now thinking about, um, let's say, uh, Tony is the head of uh, a major software or major soft drink manufacturer or a large financial institution. Sure. And he doesn't yet have a Twitter account. So some hacker decides that they're going to go out and start a, uh, a Twitter account under the name of Tony V um, and pretend that they're him and start tweeting all of these really off-colour things on behalf of XYZ Bank. Mm. I mean, does this happen? Can this happen? And and from a cybersecurity point of view, what sorts of risks like this aren't often discussed and thought about that we really need to be looking at? Yeah, look, the, the social media engineering uh, piece that you've just uh, discussed is a huge issue. Um, a couple of years ago, I was very fortunate. I went to a uh, talk by New South Wales Police 
And one of the police officers uh, who's in the cybersecurity area, he, he did a presentation, which is how to hack a bank in 80 minutes, uh, including toilet break, <laughs> as he said. And he basically social media engineered his way in um, to a big four bank within you know less than two hours. You, by using the uh, three of these people in this organisation, their kids played on the same football team, which he worked out through social media. And he picked up the phone and he rang up uh, one of the other people that was connected through the team and said, oh, look, you know, I went and saw you know, the, the kids play. Your kid played really well. You know, we had a great game. It was a good win. By the way, can you reset my username and password um, for access to the bank, please? I've just had a, an issue. And they did. You know, so social media engineering is a huge issue, as is um, whether it's accidental or malicious insider threats. So you might have an employee who is really not wanting to be there anymore and decides they're going to take, you know, a copy of all the data of, of your customers, for instance, and, and walk off with it. Um, so a lot of the issues that we see uh, in breaches is either accidental or it's an insider issue. And if you look at the number of breaches, uh, I often put up a slide when I do my presentations, hackers will cause between 35 and 45% of your breaches, your employees will cause between 55 and 65% of breaches, and yet we're not thinking about you know the employees being the risk, we're thinking about the hacker being the risk. So part of that change needs to also occur where organisations um, should appreciate that their employees are going to be a, a potentially big problem. And one of the things that I talk about, particularly with the generation, you know, uh, the millennials and the like, is they view privacy a little bit different to how people such as myself, who a bit of a grey beard, view privacy. And as a result, what they feel is private isn't necessarily what the business feels it's private. So a lot of the times these people actually quite openly publicise things that, you know, as, as old timers like us would, would probably look at, I don't know, I don't know whether you should be doing that. You know, mm. and, and as a result of that, we also need to educate some of the younger people about what privacy entails. Forget the cybersecurity message. It's, this is what privacy is. This is why you shouldn't put your boarding pass with a glass of champagne, <laughs> you know, on, on your Facebook account or your Twitter account, you know, that sort of uh, perspective. Yeah, well, I guess that's, that's important because the privacy values of the organisation for which the individual might work could potentially differ significantly from the privacy values of the individual working at the organisation. As you said, you know, the the 19 and 20 year olds, and I've used this example possibly on this podcast before, I was at a barbecue with some friends and I was talking about how um, a certain unnamed financial institution with which I bank had contacted me and said, oh, we've been going through your statements and we noticed you're paying way too much for health insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a competitive product that we'd like to talk to you about. My initial reaction was that I was aghast that they had been going through my data uh, the young kids who were at the barbecue with their parents' reaction was, oh, you, that's awesome. You mean I don't have to think anymore about who I buy my health insurance through? They'll just tell me when they've got a better rate. That's great. Yeah, We were at such opposite ends of the spectrum on what is private. And yeah, it's a, it, it's a real challenge. Kids yeah. these days don't value privacy the same way. They don't. And, uh, and one of the stories that I, I tell, uh, and I do a lot of, um, at universities and TAFEs, I do a lot of little uh, presentations to some of the students there. When I was young, uh, my uncle who lived w with us, he went and voted in the uh, federal election and he came home and I would have been about eight or nine and I said to him, I, I asked him, I said, who did you vote for? And, you know, back in the days when, you know, it, was, it wasn't uncommon to sometimes smack a child, he didn't, but he got mm. close to it. He said, how dare you ask me that question? It's a private vote and you should never tell anyone. Now, 
I joke to the younger folks saying, look, if you go onto a Facebook feed, I can pretty much figure out who you and your friends and anyone else have voted for very, very quickly. People are quite open to, to mm. talking about this these days. And that's the change in, in how privacy is perceived between the older generation and the newer generation. Um, and to the extent of, you know, even sending uh, private pictures of themselves, I often say to organisations, don't get too cranky at your employees. They've, they've got no problems putting photos on Snapchat of things that, you know, most people should never even think about. They, they, they're not doing this maliciously to your data. They're doing it because to them it's perfectly normal. And it's your job to educate them and explain to them why it's not and why you should be really careful. Well, that's an interesting point, though, because a lot of people... So much goes on under the radar these days that people don't even think about, even things like geotagging data within photos. Mm. Most smartphones now will include, by default, geotagging data in the photos that you take. You have to go in and physically turn that feature off. Correct. And if I'm a government employee or an employee of a, a sensitive agency or whatever it may be, and I'm on, a, you know, on work assignment somewhere and I'm putting photos on my Facebook page of me in a cafe after hours at work thinking, oh, this is fine, but someone knows how to get the geotagging data out of that phone photo. They know exactly where I am. Correct, correct. And and if you look at it, look at cybersecurity, it's, it's an argument of convenience. Who doesn't like to look back at their photos of all their holidays and see where they've been geotagged? Like, you know, most people like to do that. But then you've also got the privacy element. If those photos are ever, if I leave my phone somewhere, and this morning I was walking through the, the Melbourne Convention Centre and there were two phones left on a bench there that I ended up handing in to, mm. to you know, to, to give an example. This happens quite often. Um, how do you protect that data? And in, in instances of national security, do you want people to, to know, you know, that other people have been here, there and everywhere? You'll find a lot of those organisations will typically give their employees um, very sanitised versions of, you know, a phone or a computer that they can take on their travels so that everything's all locked down. But most other organisations don't, exercise caution to that degree and they don't need to in, 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 to be honest but they do need to be aware of it but they also need to be aware of what their family and relatives are doing don't they because it can be that i work for a government department i work high up in a, a financial institution or whatever it may be and i have certain rules and regulations around what i am allowed and not allowed to do and my devices are protected mm. But I'm travelling overseas somewhere and my wife and kids are with me and they're posting all sorts of stuff on their social media accounts, which is giving away just as much, if not more information than I would be if I was doing it. Correct. So, yeah, I mean, what are the sorts of things, if you were giving this as a lecture to a group of people and you were sort of saying to their employees, here's the top five things that you need to be aware of from a social media cybersecurity point of view, what would the bullet points be? So the first thing is don't post something that in in your view would defy any law of privacy you know th there's no reason to post a whole bunch of different things that get put online quite regularly um i remember years ago i had a friend of mine post a picture on social media of his driver's license <laughs> and he he posted it on there to prove to his friends in another state where he was originally from that he had finally moved to New South Wales where I live right and i i called him and i said what are you doing and he goes oh it's just my driver's license yeah. Exactly, right? And and we know how important it is, but to him, as a non-cybersecurity person, it didn't mean anything until he explained it to him, and very soon after that, you know, the, the picture came off. So don't post things that show your date of birth, that show your address, um, that show your full name, for instance, that show your passport number, uh, that show bank account details. These are things that, you know, you are designed to be kept private. 
um, they're, they're not meant to be shared. Um, the other one is, you know, there's a, there's quite a, a famous uh, analogy within the cybersecurity world about changing your passwords the same way you change your underwear, you know, <laughs> frequently and and yeah. the like. So, um, keeping passwords reasonably um, fresh is is quite important. I'm not a proponent of someone who says you should have a different password to every different type of service. Some people say you should. My view is that you should have different categories of password dependent on whether you're using a banking app or something that's very very high level. Um, versus something that's quite trivial. And and you should have different complex uh, levels of passwords. Also, two-factor authentication, which is where um, you might have a banking app and for you to continue, they have to text you uh, a code that you then put into the app. It's not foolproof, but it provides that extra level of protection. So turning that on where you can um, as well. Um, and finally, just making sure that you know on your computer, your, your antivirus is up to date. Um, you're up to date with all your patching and updates as we were talking about earlier. Um, that whatever you're posting on social media um, is not something that you'd look back in 10 years' time and go, that was silly, why did I do that for? Because there's there's a cyber element, there's also a reputational element. We saw uh, quite recently Justin Trudeau, for instance, he put some stuff up years and years ago that back then may not have been considered as controversial as it is now, but now it's it's arguably going to lose him an election, right? So it's about being really careful about what you post on there because that becomes who you are in, in, in time. Yeah. We'll come back to the identity theft thing in a second because that was, again, one of the things that was highlighted earlier today as being one of the biggest cybersecurity challenges right now is people's identities being stolen. But a question I wanted to ask you before that, as these password key management vaults that are becoming more and more popular where I have one piece of software that handles all of my passwords and then a single master password to manage that piece of software. Mm. Everyone seems to think it's a great idea because I can have a different password for every different site and then rely on this one thing that has one master password. But to me, that sounds like an absolute disaster waiting to happen. Mm. Mm. It's it's akin to, there's a lot of people who I know, particularly the older generation, who write all their passwords in a notebook. Um, and then keep it on the on their table at home, you know, mm. so they can log in. And I say to those people, I go, look, do you have a safe? Keep that in your safe, right? Um, because that's that's quite critical. I, I agree with you. I do use a password manager purely because of the fact that, you know, otherwise my, my brains are sieved these days, I don't remember mm. anything. Um, but I also am very mindful of the fact that that can be a problem because if that app ever gets compromised, I've got issues, as do a lot of other people. The reality is, with security, it's again, it's about balancing what's practical mm -hmm. versus what's going to keep you secure. Um, the same way in the physical world, you can put, you know, gates, alarms, access codes, you know, more locks, more. If it takes you two hours to get into your home, <laughs> you know, the, what value is the security? Yeah, it's going to keep all the intruders out, but it's also going to there's going to be a high overhead. And it's the same with cybersecurity as well. There's a balance that you need to be really careful of. Yeah. Now, identity theft, that was what we were just talking about. That has become a major, major vulnerability for, for organisations, people and all the rest of it. Because if you can steal my identity, you can get into my passwords, you can get into my work accounts, all sorts of stuff. What can people do beyond what you've already suggested? And and how are people stealing identities online? What are mm. some of the ways in which these people are getting hold of identities? Yeah, so 
So in terms of tips, I some people will laugh when I suggest this to them, but get a PO box and put a lock on your um, physical post box that you have outside your house. Um, and, and again, go back to the PO box if need be. Because multiple instances of identity theft have happened where people have literally stolen letters out of a, a, a a standard post box and can then start forming an identity out of multiple pieces of, uh, of letters that they've got there. Protecting your information um, online. There are a lot of websites that are going to ask you for your name, your address, your date of birth, all this other stuff. My view is if it's an official government thing or if it's a bank-related uh, inquiry, whatever it might be, absolutely, you need to give those to statutory requirement in most cases. But if a website that you've logged into to access a news article that you're never going to use again is asking you to put in a date of birth um, after, you know, in order for you to access that article, I have a date of birth that I've created. It's not my real one. And I use that for, for that. I don't ever give my date of birth out unless it's, you know, very specific. Facebook, perfect example. People love to advertise their birth dates. Um, uh, Beggars' belief, uh, in my view, but people do that, and, and to me, that's a big issue because once you've got a name, address, and a date of birth, there's a lot of things that you can start doing in the real world around identity theft, as, as we've just talked about. There was an instance recently where um, uh, a young lady who is a uh, looks looks after my kids, um, she is studying at university. And she asked me to scan some documents for her, and I said, Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I said, What's your email address? And I'll email them to you. And she gave me her email address, which looked like a name and a number at, you know, the, the company that she's using, which is a, a free email service. And I said to her, I said, look, I said, what's that number just before the at symbol? She goes, that's my date of birth. And I said, look, you probably want to change that because if you're advertising your name and your date of birth at whatever it is dot com, I said, that might be a problem because people have your address and you can start having an issue. And no one had ever explained it to her mm. as to why it was so significant. Her email has just changed very quickly after that. But again, it comes down to explaining what we term as basic cybersecurity principles to uh, everyday people who it's not a major consideration for them mm. and, and helping them understand why it's so critical. Um, there was the amusing story a couple of years ago at the Melbourne Cup where the lady had the, uh, the winning ticket of the horse and she put it up on social media and someone went and um, printed her photo with the ticket and scanned the ticket and collected the winnings, right? Um, it was $860 worth and she, she only worked it out when she went to collect and they said, no, you've already collected the money. Um, this is what we're talking about is guarding that information. Just because it's a barcode, people assume that barcodes can't be uh, reverse engineered. It's very easy for them to do. Don't put things online. That's all I can suggest. Well, a, a great one I came across a couple of years ago was a questionnaire that was doing the rounds to everyone saying, how much do you know about your partner or how much do you know about your best friend? Uh, and as I was looking at it, I noticed that the questions that they were asking looked extremely similar to the security test questions that a lot of app, uh, sites like Apple and all sorts of other people would use, such as, you know, or Zero, whoever it may be, you know, what what was your best friend's favourite movie as a kid? What was your best friend's first primary school? What was your best friend's first car? And then the idea of this quiz is that, you know, they would send it to the, the friend that you're talking about and they'd have to type in the answers and then it'd give you a score back out of 100 as to how well you knew that person. But what a lot of people didn't realise is they were skimming all of that data 
and then using that to get into people's accounts. Yeah, correct, correct. And and unfortunately, whether we like it or not, most people's passwords are either something to do with their partner or their pets or their kids or whatever it might be. And as humans, we all think very, very similar. And hackers use that psychology, and this is this is how they get in. And this is where, you know, often when, when people say to me, what sort of password should I use? Something literally as random as you can guess, as, as you can have. Something that someone will look at you and it won't be the where you just went on holidays or what you did or what your favourite food is. Something completely random. And that's usually going to help you far more than, um, you know, using, you know, your, your kids' names, for instance, because that's very guessable. Through some of the stuff that you just talked about, because this stuff is available online and some people through... through uh, a game or whatever it might be where they feel like it's a challenge. They feel compelled. They want to, you know, talk to their friends and they want to do it socially and that brings in a, a lot of problems. Yeah. So, to bring it back to something we probably should discuss before we finish this, what is ISC Squared doing with ASIO? Sure. So, so ISC Squared, so I've been working with ASIO for a long period of time um, and ISC Squared and ASIO are now working uh, together particularly around uh, ensuring that physical security and electronic security personnel um, understand the value of cybersecurity, um, consider becoming certified in cybersecurity, particularly for those who are using uh, networking and, and, and IT-related technologies in order to deploy those physical and electronic security solutions. So um, we're working really closely on a bunch of different measures. There's a, a couple of certifications that uh, we're talking about uh, for their members, um, including uh, the SSCP certification, which is one for a lot of the uh, networking and IT people to consider in order to be able to be quite qualified when it comes to cybersecurity. Um, there's a bunch of other ones as well. It's also about educating ASIO members on cyber. Um, for instance, writing articles, giving them an idea as to what cybersecurity means for them and for their organisations and why they should take it seriously. Yeah. Often it's not a challenge to get the security managers to talk, take it seriously, though. It's a matter of getting the board and the procurement department and the people who write the checks to take it seriously. Mm. Uh, and so how do we do that? Well, through more awareness, you, you touched on at the very beginning of this, um, the Australian Cybersecurity Centre report that said that, you know, there's a breach every 10 minutes. This stuff is happening. It is happening all the time. And one of the biggest complacencies that exist is people thinking, I'm just a such and such business. Why would a hacker want to attack me? It's not personal. These people will uh, look, uh, they'll use automated tools, they'll look for vulnerabilities in a bunch of different websites and, and companies. And when they find one that is open, they'll exploit it. And they might put ransomware in, they might um, look at who your, your customer records are, whatever it might be that'll make them some money. One of the biggest challenges is, is changing the perception of, of hackers. Hackers are criminals. They are the same way that physical security people would look at burglars or, or people who are, are vandals. That's what cyber criminals are actually doing. Um, they're there to make money and they know that it's very, very low risk for them because it's very hard for them to get arrested. And if they do get arrested, uh, very often they're given very, very light uh, sentences compared to people in the physical world. So they know that the odds are, are with them um, in terms of being able to do this. So the best way to protect yourself is to protect yourself and to make sure that you've got uh, enough of a wall uh, built to keep these people out. Um, yeah. On that point, though, that's an interesting point that you make because you say, you know, hackers are like criminals. There's this perception that, you know, the hacker is the the kid in the black hoodie sitting in the basement trying to crack into your, your passwords or whatever it may be. But one of the biggest challenges I see around cybersecurity is that 
many businesses, especially small to medium businesses, still have that mental picture of that's what a hacker is. And that's why they think, oh, well, they're not going to be interested in me. They'd never care about my business. They don't understand that that actually isn't a hacker anymore. A hacker is an automated algorithm or a bot that just runs on a computer 24-7, trawling the internet, looking for vulnerabilities anywhere and everywhere, relentlessly. Mm. Uh, and that's how they become vulnerable. So yeah, I guess that's an important distinction to make. Absolutely. Um, in the UK, for instance, the number one category of reported crime today is cybercrime. So this uh, out uh, ranks all other form of all other forms of crime. So this is what if there's a takeaway from this is think of the hacker as a criminal. And like you said, most of these people are running automated systems that are just out there looking for something that's that's you know, a, a gate that's open or a front door that the, the, laws, uh, the, the lock's busted. And if they can get in, that's when the human comes in and starts fishing around and finding the data and then taking it. And the next thing you know, you're, you're, you're being advertised, um, you know, as a company that's just suffered a massive breach. Um, most organisations, the ANU breach, the Australian National University breach that we talked about, they weren't even uh, aware that a breach had occurred for months afterwards. You know, so most organisations don't even know what's happened until one day they get someone knocking on their door. Um, usually, one of the, the authorities saying, "Look, we found your data online. You might want to, <laughs> you know, fix yourself up here." Um, and it's happened. It happens quite frequently. Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it would be the equivalent of in a physical world just having our skies full of thousands and thousands of drones 24 hours a day just flying around randomly checking your front door checking your windows checking your car doors checking your bikes locked until it finds a vulnerability and then reporting back to someone saying that front door's open go in there steal that that window's open that bike's unlocked that car's unlocked yeah. i mean we don't think of it in that context but in a cyberspace that's literally what's going on we just have drones flying around everywhere non-stop testing all of our doors, windows, wallets, cars, everything. Yep. And then taking your analogy a little bit further, once uh, the, the drones reported that it's found the back door that you, you can you can twist a jar and you can get in, it's the equivalent of a burglar going in there and photocopying out of all the filing cabinets all of your customer printouts from all the sales that they've done, all of the personal data, and photocopying it, not taking it, photocopying it, leaving it all there and walking out. And you start trading the next day and have no idea that anyone's even been in there, right? Um, you know, let alone that they've now got your data and you're going to start losing sales quite quickly after that, for instance. Wow. Tony, if people want to find out more about ISC Squared, where do they go? Uh, they visit www.isc2.org um, and all of our information is there. Uh, we do do a lot of work around advocacy with cybersecurity. And our motto is uh, for a safer and more secure cyber world. That's what we aim uh, to try to deliver for, for people all around the world. Tony, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much for your time. John, thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, if you want more podcasts like this, you can find them at uh, Aziel Insider, either through iTunes, Google, Spotify, or all the great places that you would find your other podcasts. And we look forward to talking to you next time.